Hello, I'm Christian Wagner, and this is Militant Thomist. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, stoked to be here. Your mic seems a yeah. bit off. Could you uh, say something real quick yeah. for me? Hello, testing, testing. Okay, you're good now. now. You're good now. Okay, okay so yeah. I was saying, you know, yeah, I'm stoked to be here. Okay, give us a little bit of of your background, some of your scholarly work you do, and then some of the the popular work you do on YouTube and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So general info about me: I am a Catholic apologist. I actually I wasn't always Catholic. I was briefly atheist agnostic, but I was also a Protestant for eleven ish years of my life, and then I returned to the Catholic faith, which is what I originally grew up in. Um, during that time, I picked up a lot of um, interesting experiences along the way. Um, and for example, uh, it was actually during my Protestant years that I first became really into apologetics. And one of the, and I tackled a lot of different topics, but you know, we're specifically talking about Islamic apologetics right now, because that was one of the major things that um, I became interested in when I started doing apologetics. Uh, I got involved in a lot of discussions and debates with Muslims over the years, and I became interested enough in it that I decided that I would actually do an academic study of comparative religions with a focus on Islam. And that's uh, what's gotten me to my present moment as a PhD candidate in the University of Toronto studying uh that subject like inter-religious relations specifically how islam relates to other religions is there a specific uh time of yours of your study um like a time frame uh medieval modern <laughs> contemporary what's yeah. uh what what's your uh, focus yeah i focused mainly on medieval writings particularly like uh, I'm interested in Muslims who use biblical material in their writings, and there are a variety of Muslim authors who do that, actually. Um, you have, for example, uh, Ibn Hazm, who was an Islamic apologist in the 11th century, and he wrote a multi-volume series on different religions. And he, he actually, one of the things he did there was he critiqued the Bible as a way of showing how, you know, his religion was correct and the Jews and the Christians are all wrong. But not every Muslim who tackles biblical material does it negatively. You have, uh, by contrast, uh, the historian Ibn Khaldun and the Quranic commentator Al-Baqa'i, who also used biblical material, but they were much more sympathetic to the material they were using. And, you know, they actually, like, held it in high esteem. So was this kind of like a period of uh, Muslim scholasticism a bit? Could we describe it as such? I think you can use that term. Uh, might be a bit of a misnomer because it's not scholasticism the way we think of like medieval Christian scholasticism. Uh, there were definitely some, you know, uh, interchanges, some influences, uh, but they tended to operate on different wavelengths. So I've been uh I've been actually curious about this kind of uh, introductory section, but um, when it comes to Muslim uh, theology, 
where do we go for reference? Is there like Muslim catechisms, Muslim systematic theologies? Is there is, is there yeah. sis similar systems of theology in Islam as there is in Christianity? Yeah, so it's a little bit um, tricky to talk about what Muslims believe as like, you know, that's gonna be like asking what Christians believe. And, you know, there's not necessarily going to be one answer to that topic because, you know, there are different groups of Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, etc. And each of those groups is going to answer that question differently. The same with Muslims. You do have subgroups within Islam. You have uh, Sunnis and Shi'is, but even within Sunnism and Shi'ism, you have subgroups. For example, Shi'is have Twelvers and Ismailis, and they all have a slightly different take. Uh, so... If you want to learn about their belief systems, um, you would have to look at the primary sources. So with Muslims as a whole, the main book that all of them hold in common, uh, of course, would be the Quran. So you would want to study up on their sacred text and to try to understand the best as you can. And then with regards to specific groups, um, there's a lot of focus on um like traditions of the prophet so sunnis for example would have um what you would call the hadith collections and those are like sayings of the prophet or you know life of the prophet and then they would take all of those teachings and they would try to build uh entire legal systems or theological systems out of that so with islam like there's a lot of um focus on the legal aspect of it so they have really thick um uh law codes think of the code of canon law for example um they have a lot of uh texts that are equivalent to that uh to name just one example there's a book called uh, the reliance of the traveler which is um it was from a jurist uh i believe that he was is either Maliki or Shafi, I'm forgetting at the moment, but uh, it's like a compendium of law from that legal school's perspective. Um, with regards to theology, uh, more strictly speaking, uh, I would say that if you want a short introduction to what Muslim theology is, there's a couple of books that I would recommend. Um, there's a, uh, both of them were authored by William Montgomery Watt, who is like a classic uh, author in this field. So first he wrote a book called Islamic Theology and Philosophy, which is uh, it's like a brief history of all the various theological controversies that have occurred in Islam and the different schools of thought that have emerged as a result of that. Uh, the other work by him would be a book, uh, it's called Muslim Creeds. So oh, there are these um, short statements of faith that we would call creeds might be a little bit of misnomer once again because they're not exactly creeds the way we would think of the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed but uh, what they are they're short uh, summaries of like the Muslim faith uh, as interpreted from the perspective of different uh, theological schools so every school has its own creed and Muslim the book Muslim creeds actually has a you know, a bunch of them, which allows you to like see and contrast what each group thinks. So when it when it comes to um, providing us a basic level f from which to uh, do apologetics with Muslims, 
what you're saying is that first and foremost, it's going to be centered around the Quran, and then depending mm -hmm. on which group the the hadiths. And then for the for the hadith, I have a quick question. So, is it sure. in other groups of Islam? Does it function in um, a secondary uh, way, such mm -hmm. as for certain Protestant groups? You'll get them using uh, the church fathers, whereas in um, yeah. in Orthodoxy and then in uh, Roman Catholicism, it's held to a higher degree. Is mm -hmm. there this tiered system, or is it just all or nothing? Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing is, because um, Muslims believe that Muhammad is the perfect example. Anything that he says or does is actually, you know, uh, treated as like the final word on any given matter. That just becomes a question of determining, um, you know, how much of the um, material found in the, these different collections is authentic. And there's like an, an entire system of study in Islam dedicated to that, like authentication of stories and narrations to see which ones are authentic or not. And there are general consensuses on which ones are authentic. Um, there's not an absolute consensus on everything, for example. Um, but insofar as you know, you could trace something back to the prophet. They would consider that to be, you know, sort of like magisterial in authority. And again, magisterial is not a word they would use, but I'm just using it by way of analogy. So, is there any? Um attempt in islam to try to better communicate uh the islamic faith uh to western christians by providing a uh, systematic overlay that's like our systems of theology oh yeah sure um a lot of it is written by westernized muslim academics who receive their training in western universities um, let me see if I actually have, nope, I don't, but, um, trying to remember, there's this book that I was reading a while back. The title is what is Islam? Uh, the, let me see, try to remember the uh, name of the author. It was, uh, I think, um, give me a sec while I try to remember the author's name. Ah, yeah. Shahab Ahmed. There you go. That's the guy that. That, that um he wrote basically an introductory book on islam and it's you know it's as close as i can think of to, to like a systematic theology in like a western um like christian sense so it goes over the basics of the religion and it tries to like uh cover the beliefs uh in a systematic way so um in in approaching uh islamic apologetics what is what would you say is um your approach of choice is it something which is working within the mm -hmm. uh the system of faith to prov yeah. to uh provide an alternative which is superior is it uh going uh, yeah. to historical resources is it uh philosophical in nature to show uh, absurdities is it yeah. even uh, I've heard you mention before that there are certain linguistic uh, ways in which going about yeah. it. Is there these different approaches to um, yeah. Islamic apologetics? Yeah, there are definitely different ways of going about it. I think um, 
one of the best things that any Christian apologist can do is to try to have a solid, like, positive case for the Christian faith, first and foremost. Um, like, um, you know, you don't have, I mean, you don't actually, this is one of my um, things, like, um, I learned over the years that nothing beats a good, positive presentation of your own faith. So I think a large chunk of it is going to be showing to uh, Muslims why, for example, the Bible is historically reliable and why, um, you know, Jesus is, in fact, the second person of Trinity and why this is not polytheism as they would uh, assert but if you're going to do a more like offensive, um, if you want to go on the offense with regards to Islam, um, you know, it's very important to know the primary sources. And it's also very important to know, you know, uh, what are the points of contact with Christian belief, how they differ, and how would you go about navigating those differences? One of the things that I like to do is to focus on the Quran and the Islamic traditions view of the previous scriptures, because the Quran does mention the Bible. It talks about the Torah, the Psalms and the gospel. And, you know, there's a whole literature um, of surrounding like what exactly is it referring to and um, what is its view on these previous uh, books. But one um, title that I just want to mention out there. This is a book that I highly recommend to anyone who is doing, um, you know, uh, discussions with Muslims in any depth is The Gentle Answer um, to the Muslim Accusation of Biblical Falsification by Gordon Mikkel. So I'm just going to hold the title up to the screen so you can see it. And I think this is one of my favorite books. Uh, on this topic, it delves primarily on the topic of the Quran's interaction with the Bible, what it thinks of the Bible, whether it confirms its authenticity or regards it as corrupt. And then it even goes into a little bit of the Quran's like his like history of transmission, like historical criticism of it, uh, not into any depth, but you know, it's touched upon a little bit. And I think that's a good thing to know about because um, one of the things that Muslim apologists like to do is to use historical criticism against the Bible. Um, and it's worth mentioning whenever that happens that if you use the exact same standards on the Quran, it doesn't come out quite um, rosy either. So when it comes to uh the sort of uh, negative apologetics you're talking about when it comes to defending the specific claims of the Christian faith, what are some, what are some common uh, points of attack from a Muslim, which doctrines or um, ideas will a Muslim go after in, in a normal apologetic encounter? Right. Um, when talking to Muslims, the discussion almost always, um, ends up being about one of two things. One is our view of God, so Trinitarianism versus Unitarianism. And then the corollary to that, of course, would be the divinity of Christ in the Incarnation. And the one other thing that frequently comes up in discussions with Muslims would be, you know, the doctrine of Scripture. Like, is the Bible reliable? Is it corrupted? It, um, 
are the authors of scripture trustworthy or were they deceivers who falsified their information so there are other topics that could come up in a debate but the vast majority of them are some variation of one of those two questions and even when it's on a different topic it tends to dovetail back into them in some way or another for example uh, you could talk to a muslim about different views of salvation right but at the end of the day our view of salvation is tied to what we believe about the person and nature of christ and it's also tied to what we believe god has revealed to us through scripture that is really interesting because um you read for example saint thomas aquinas in his uh, compendium of theology he's going mm -hmm. to at the very beginning in the introduction to that say that the mm -hmm. two central points in which every student of theology needs to know is the trinity and is the incarnation and this seems right. like from at least most muslim uh, apologetics that i've seen the two points of attack they know right. that if the trinity or the incarnation falls the christian faith falls so what is um the typical uh mode of attack will they uh go and say okay this is inconsistent with the bible as a uh, christian yeah. christian quote unitarian would or is it something deeper than that will they say okay this is logically uh incoherent or will there be both uh ways of attack yeah i've seen muslims uh attack the, uh christian trinitarianism from three different angles all right so they will take one of three um methods of attack um there's the logical angle they will try to uh you know assert that the trinity is incoherent or inconsistent within itself that it is not true monotheism or that some of its premises contradict each other that's um one method that is frequently uh used the other one is the more biblical method and this one comes up uh more frequently with muslims who have some knowledge of what the bible says so there has been a trend uh, among Muslim apologists, especially in the last 50 years, to quote mine from um, the Bible, especially the Gospels, to try to find quotes where Jesus seems less than divine. So uh, they'll, for example, uh, point to the passage where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. Or they'll point to the one where he's talking to the rich young ruler and says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Or they'll point to Jesus' prayer in John 17 and where Jesus says in verse 3, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. There's a lot of other proof texts that they may use, but these are just some of the main ones that you will most likely encounter from a Muslim who wants to show that, see, you know, the Gospels themselves contradict uh, belief in the divinity of Christ. Finally, there's a hist historical angle. Um, this one, um, it, it's, uh, they do this with varying degrees of success. They will say that, um, you know, Trinitarian thought was not part of the doctrine of the earliest Christians, but this was something that was developed much later on you know, was the result of much controversy and was then retrojected back into uh, earlier um, beliefs. 
So they would argue that this is sort of like a later corruption of the original pure teachings of Jesus and his disciples. And uh, some Muslim, a lot of Muslims who go this route do it really sloppily. They'll resort to Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code style conspiracy theories. But there are a few somewhat more sophisticated ones who will, you know, argue based on some version of, you know, development of doctrine. But it's development of doctrine in the sense that the developments are actually corruption. Okay, so this is this has been a pretty good kind of overview of um, of resources and then Muslim argumentation. So, why does why does this matter? That that's that's what? the because personally, when it comes to me, I have encountered uh, in my entire life one Muslim, and yeah. albeit I'm from a very small town uh, that was predominantly uh, white and uh, evangelical, so for for the listeners um who may never encounter a muslim in in real life or very few muslims is there going to be future do you believe future trends where they will have the, these encounters like why does this why does this matter for us well think about it this way all right um in the world today there are really only two major christ missionary religions in the world one of them is christianity and the other one is Islam. Like every other religion, they're either really not concerned about making converts or they're too demographically insignificant to make much of a dent on the world stage. For example, um, you know, Hinduism, it's a very large world religion, but Hindus aren't out trying to convert the rest of the world to Hinduism. They're more or less content to keep it within their own ethnic enclaves. By contrast, Mormonism, is a very active missionary religion. They're trying to build temples and win converts throughout the world. But Mormonism is de demographically insignificant. There's only 17 and a half million of them um, worldwide. And, you know, the way things are going, they're not going to be able to sustain um, their growth long term. And they're definitely never going to become like a huge problem for us, more like, you know, a nuisance that we'll run into once in a while when they knock on our doors. Islam, by contrast, is both an active missionary religion and a very large demographically significant religion. So they make up, what, 22% of the world's population? Christians make up maybe, what, 32%? Um, and, you know, as the rest of the world um, converts to one or another of those two major religions, you're going to see a world that's increasingly going to be um, polarized into those two camps and it's going to be a lot harder to like remain isolated from them for very long even in a place like the united states you know it really depends on where you are if you live in a big city like new york or chicago or detroit you're gonna encounter plenty of muslims um, so it's much more relevant to someone in an urban context i live in toronto canada and Muslims make up maybe 5% of the population here. And, you know, when I went to high school, I think, you know, every single class that I've had has at least two or three. Uh, when I go to the University of Toronto, one of the largest and most active religious groups there is the Muslim Student Association. So they are definitely putting themselves out there. Uh, if you 
go to a large city such as where I live. But in smaller towns, you know, it's going to come a little bit slower. Um, as demographics change, you will be seeing more and more of them in small towns. And I think someone who may previously have never uh, met them before, it's probably good to know uh, how to engage with them. So we all have limited time in the day and mm -hmm. uh, limited time for reading, resources for books and such. Mm -hmm. It seems that the uh, modern bent you'll see for most apologetics that go outside of the Christian faith rather than the uh, Orthodox, Catholic, Catholic, Protestant, inter-Protestant sort mm -hmm. of debates that go on is secularism. So yeah. we are engaging atheists with uh, arguments uh, for God and arguments mm -hmm. for other things. And you'll have uh, pagans, uh, you'll have uh, sort of the, the nuns and uh, N O N E S the sort of like make my own religious uh, religion. I'm mm -hmm. spiritual, not religious. And there's all of these apologetic encounters that uh, we can um, get into on that ranking. Where do you think Islam uh, would be like how, if, if we're going to be prepared Christians to give a reason for the hope that is within us, should it be near the top of the list or should we kind of count our losses, make it a secondary thing, and then still focus on secularism and the other sort of uh, niche Western uh, trends? Yeah, this is a difficult question for me to answer because I actually do go back and forth on it. Like definitely the main problem of our age is secularism and liberalism and atheism. And I think that a lot of our apologetic efforts are geared towards answering atheists for good reason. If you look at, um, you know, the Catholic Church in North America, for example, uh, what do the vast majority of Catholics who leave their faith go into? Well, they just become religious nuns, right? Um, there's also a large contingent of them who join other religions, such as various Protestant churches. But the ones who convert to a non-Christian religion, such as Islam or Buddhism, are like a very tiny sliver, maybe like 10% of those who leave the faith. Um, so at the moment, it's not a huge problem, at least here in the West. Um, what I would say is we should definitely focus on um, secularism, but you should always have some people who are doing that vanguard, like dealing with other groups, like non-Christian religions, such as Islam, that are also uh, trying to gain converts from Christianity to their religion. And also, um, it's not, I, I, I don't like to phrase it as like spending our resources tackling one issue versus another. Um, there are ways to do both at the same time. For example, if you're doing biblical apologetics for the Bible, you're trying to show the reliability of scripture. Well, that's useful when you're talking to skeptics. That's also useful when you're talking to Muslims. So if you're doing that kind of apologetics, you're already killing two birds with one stone. Or think about defending the Trinity, right? That's useful when you're talking to Muslims. It's also useful when you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or non-Trinitarian sects. So there's a wide variety of applications for that kind of apologetics that's not limited to just dealing with one specific religion. 
Okay, so for everybody um, sending your questions now, we'll be tra transitioning to Q&A soon, but I still have a few more questions I want to ask you about. So you you mentioned a little bit about um, ethnicity and race and other, and other religions, and this can also be a, a critique that's leveled against certain evangelical groups, uh, Mormons, mm -hmm. and uh, in Eastern, even Eastern Orthodoxy has this uh, uh, ethnic bent to it. How, how does that play into Islam? Because I've heard various um, various stories when it comes to how uh, Arabs and uh, Africans and North Africans uh, versus uh, Europeans are viewed within the uh, Islamic faith. Is there sort mm -hmm. of a tiered structure of race that is connected yeah. to uh, connected to one's faith? Yeah. Well, um, you know, Islam started in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, it's main primary primary sacred text and all of its major documents have been written in arabic so the and actually um uh, one of the things you have to know about like at least mainstream sunni islam is they believe that um the quran is um a reflection of an eternal uh tablet up in heaven so there is a sense in which um the arabic text uh that uh, is contained within it is actually transcendent in its um, value. Plus, of course, you know, Muhammad is the perfect example and everything he said was in Arabic. So just that fact means that that language has pride of place. And by extension, that means the people who speak that language uh, have pride of place within the religion. And in fact, uh, in Islam's early history, there was actually uh, a bit of Arab-centeredness in the early Islamic empire. Um, the, like during the time of the Umayyad Caliphate, for example, while there were already some non-Muslim converts, like some Persians or some Berbers, uh, the ruling class was, most, was almost entirely Arab, and that remained the case up until like the Umayyads were overthrown by the Abbasids. And, you know, Persians started becoming a little bit more prominent. And, um, you know, and to this day, to this day, um, throughout the Muslim world, you'll find people who will try to uh, show their prestige by claiming that they have some sort of connection to either the prophet's family, you know, um, they would refer to them as Ahlul Bayt, or if they can't make that connection, they'll try to prove that they have some sort of lineage to the Quraysh tribe, which Muhammad came from. And the funny thing is a lot of the people who make these sorts of lineage claims, uh, not all of them are necessarily Arab. You'll find like people from South Asian backgrounds, for example, who will claim this lineage. Well, the fact that they're claiming it mean, you know, assuming it's true, that means that there's some sort of there's some level of Arab blood in there. And that uh, gives them a level of prestige that people who lack that lineage do not. OK, so um, I'm wondering, to, this is kind of a twofold question, but first, what is the uh, Muslim view of the Catholic faith or Christianity in general? And then second, what is the Catholic view of Islam? Because you get, mm. you'll get rad trads mad about uh, Lumen Gentium and then the catechism. So what is a faithful, uh, charitable interpretation on both sides mm. of how they would view the other? 
Right. So I'll start by talking about the Catholic perspective on Islam, okay? So remember that um, there's always been that tension, okay? On the one hand, um, a lot of the um, historic interactions between the two faiths have been um, less than friendly, we should say. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, bloodshed, like the Crusades. It, even when there wasn't bloodshed, there's a lot of like polemicizing, okay? Like when whenever any Christian cleric or theologian or writer talks about Islam, it's almost always negative, right? You study Aquinas, you know that he had very little good to say about the um, Muslim religion. Including and, uh, Scotus, for everybody out there. Yeah. Uh, I was reading Scotus, and Scotus has a lot more to say than Aquinas about Islam. Yeah, he yeah. goes he goes hard against them. Yeah, so like that attitude was pretty much the norm for almost the entirety of history. Like there were obviously going to be some people who tried to take a more diplomatic tack. Uh, think of St. Francis of Assisi, who, who famously... Uh, went to the, I believe it was the Mamluk Sultan's court and actually had friendly relations with him. But stuff like that is the exception rather than the rule. So you come to the modern age, you have documents such as Nostra Etate, which talks about the fact that, you know, Muslims and Christians worship the same God and that we should try to um, approach Muslims in a spirit of peace and cooperation. And you know, a lot of um, rad trads, as you mentioned, look at that and it, it makes them upset because they they have this um, consciousness of the fact that the vast majority of our history has been one of polemics and bloodshed and conflict. Well, you know, there's um, two things that I would say about that. One is that you know, it's a difference of emphasis, right? Uh, a difference of emphasis is not the same thing as a difference of, of um, doctrine, right? Because nothing that has been declared dogmatically from the past has ever been, like, nullified or abrogated in Nostra Aetate. Like, there was never, you know, I don't... As far as I know, there's never been a papal pronouncement saying we should approach Muslims in a spirit of, like, you know, belligerence or anything like that. So Nostra Aetate is, in a way, it is different from the past, but it's, you know, doing it in such a way that is um, also tapping into um, this some of that spirit of cooperation that does come up from time to time, which is the other thing that I want to mention, which is that... Nostra Aetate and Lumen Gentium and, you know, the post-Vatican II um, attitude towards Islam and other religions isn't entirely new. There is a level of continuity there. You just have to be um, a little, dig a little bit, bit deeper and try to have a more nuanced view. Um, for example, um, the question of whether Christian and Muslims worship the same God. If you, I've done some research on this question from a historical perspective, as it turns out, like most Christian theologians throughout history uh, believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Obviously not all of them did, but um, I've combed through many 
the writings of many bishops, theologians, popes, and it seems that um, the most of them have this idea that uh, the Muslims they may not um, get everything about God right, but they are still reaching for the God of Abraham, and that God credits their worship as being directed towards Him. Okay, so on the flip side, what is the Muslim view of Catholicism or Christianity in general? Well, you know, um, depends on who you talk to. Um, well, I mean, that's, you know, the main gist of it. Uh, if you want to look at it from the perspective of, say, the Quran, the Quran is actually a bit of a mixed bag here because on the one hand, it says they, it will talk about how, you know, the Christians are a friendly, hospitable people. Uh, it will praise them as a people of the book for having, you know, having received revelation from God. Uh, on the other hand, it will castigate them for false beliefs, such as uh, believing in the divinity of Jesus. Uh, it will deny key Christian beliefs, such as the crucifixion. It will, and there's at least um, one passage that explicitly condemns Christians to hell. Um, so, you know, it depends on which set of verses in the Quran you're looking at. And Muslims will draw from both and they will emphasize one or the other, depending on, um, the times and the context they're living in. So for example, you know, um, a lot of Muslims living in the past in that spirit of belligerence towards Christians will probably lean on those Quranic uh, passages that are less than friendly towards Christians. On the other hand, a modern Muslim living in North America today who wants to um, get along well with his Christian neighbors are going to emphasize um, that aspect of his religion's teaching that um, is more conciliatory and diplomatic towards Christians. Okay, so... As as my la this is my last question, but what when when you've been looking at uh, Christian responses to Islam, can you think of any prominent examples or a general overview of examples of bad arguments that Christians should stop using against Islam? I'm sure uh, you could go all argument. night about this, <laughs> but oh, yeah, 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 just a general. Sure. Um, right, so. Let, let, let's let, I'll deal with a bunch of the bunch of them. So one that I can think of, which is historically very questionable, but was very prominent during the 90s and even the early 2000s was the moon god argument. Have you ever heard of that one? So there so somebody I don't remember who it was. He um, so I think it was a Christian um, missionary who he promulgated the idea that um, um, the that Allah, like the God of Islam, was really just the pagan moon god of the uh, Meccans um, named Hubal, and that when Islam emerged, um, they basically took the pagan moon god and sort of like uh, refurbished him, as it were, and that is the origins of Islam's view of God. Now, this is a historically untenable theory, and very few use it today, but it pops up once in a while. I thought it would be worth mentioning. Uh, other 
um, arguments that I would never um, encourage Christians to use. Um, trying here, here's one that really gets under my skin. Trying to um, make a big deal out of Aisha, uh, Muhammad's um, that one wife that Muhammad took. When I have heard six. of this one, the whole yes. pedophilia thing. Yes, yes. Okay, so there are many things that can be said about this. First of all, um, the age is based on certain traditions, and those traditions are by no means unanimously accepted amongst those who, um, you know, amongst Muslims. There are some who might, who actually do believe that Aisha was older when Muhammad married her. Um, and there, there is actually... Uh, there is a scholarly undercurrent currently developing that is pushing in that direction. It hasn't yet become like a huge thing, but it's worth noting that there is that difference of opinion there. Um, the other thing is, of course, um, if you take into account the, the sweep of history, getting married at a young age has always been a common thing. So... In the modern context, it's understandable why that would elicit some raising of eyebrows. But, you know, I would imagine that in the 7th century, something like that would have been shrugged off as, meh, no big deal. You know, business as usual. And finally, you know, I just have to question the motivations of a lot of Christians who use this argument. Because I think most of the people who use it, use it for the shock value of it. Like, they don't. They're not trying to build a rational critique of Islam when they use this argument. They're just trying to get a rise, uh, you know, out of people. Can there be any of these arguments given that are good against the personal um, sanctity of Muhammad? Like uh, talking about uh, how he was violent or bloody or did this or that thing. I, I'm not really familiar with, with many of these arguments, except the fact that he was violent. Oh, sure. You can find hadiths that present Muhammad that way. You can also find hadiths that present the exact opposite picture. So there, there's a mass, because the hadith collections are voluminous, you can find anything in them. If you want to portray Muhammad as bloodthirsty and violent, I guarantee you, you'll find something that will match that picture. It's a, it's a lot of it has to do with like questioning how much of these narratives are actually historically reliable, can actually be traced back to the historical Muhammad and are like an authentic representation of Islam. Um, and I think you can make that argument. Um, we actually had a debate recently um, between uh, Robert Spencer and Javed Hashmi on reason and theology on this very issue. And I think that's a very good debate for anyone to look at if they want to see, like, you know, two solid scholars um, debating that same issue. Um, but, yeah, uh, in a nutshell, I would say that you can go that route, but you have to be very careful about the sources you use if you decide to go that route. Are there any other uh, bad arguments you can think of, or are those two kind of about it? Okay, um... So there are a couple of arguments on my mind that it's not so much that they're bad as it is they're very hard to sustain from an academic point of view. So one of them is the um, array, the, it's called the Petra theory. Uh, it's the idea that 
the that the uh, Kaaba or the Qibla was originally pointed not towards Mecca but another place uh, in Arabia Petra. It was only uh, over the course of history that um, it was moved down to Mecca. Uh, and there's actually a book on this topic. It's um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, okay, there it is. Um, Daniel Gibson, uh, Quranic Geography, a survey and evaluation of the geographical references in the Quran with suggested solutions for various problems and issues. So this guy uh, is advancing the theory that I just mentioned, that the Qibla was originally in Petra rather than Mecca. And that would actually be a very um, big issue if it was proven to be true, because it shows that you can't trust the traditional Muslim narrative of how the religion originated. But that's a big if, see. Um, the theory so far hasn't caught on outside of, you know, a few of Dr. Gibson's associates. Um, and personally, having looked at the evidence, like I can sort of see how they could arrive at that conclusion, but I'm not quite at the level where I could endorse this theory so like at most at best i'm ambivalent towards it the other theory which is um also one that has um a little bit of academic backing behind it but is highly contentious is the uh the aramaic lectionary theory so uh, um there's a guy um his real name is we don't know his real name but he, he writes under the pseudonym Christoph Luxemburg, and he wrote a book called The Syro-Aramaic Reading of the Quran, a contribution to the decoding of the language of the Quran. So his big thesis is that the Quran, uh, when it was originally um, composed, was actually sort of like a Syriac lectionary, and that was meant, it was produced by Christians trying to... Um, you know, try to sing pray, their praises to God, but over time, it got overlaid with different things, and then it evolved into an Arabic document that became a sacred text for a new religion, and that as a result of this, if you read certain uh, texts from that perspective, they suddenly have a totally different meaning from what has been traditionally assigned to it. So just like the other theory that I mentioned, this one is extremely contentious. There are a few scholars who accept this thesis. I actually know a guy. He did his PhD in the same department as me, and his dissertation was a defense of this theory. But, you know, the vast majority of people who study um, this subject would not accept the conclusions um, of Dr. Luxemburg or my colleague uh, from UFT. Uh, in fact, uh, my supervisor, uh, Dr. Walid Saleh, he's actually one of the major critics of this theory. So he has uh, he has a lot to say about um, the questionable assumptions that have gone into it. Um, now, you know, I'm not. I don't, I, I'm not one to make conclusions on behalf of anyone. I think that if either of these two theories um, are of interest to you, go ahead and pick up Dr. Gibson's book or Dr. Luxembourg's book and look at the case they make. Just remember, though, that um, uh, there are also a lot of people who criticize these, and you should look at their criticisms as well.
Okay, so I see one question in the chat. If you guys have any more, send them right now. Uh, so e Ivan is asking, I'm assuming, are there relations between Nestorianism and Islam? Um, you have to define relations a little bit better. You mean like did Nestorianism influence Islam or did Muslims have relations with Nest like diplomatic relations with Nestorians? Um, I can answer both of those, by the way. Um, did Nestorianism influence Islam? Not as far as I know. In fact, um, uh, a lot of the Christians who lived in the Arabian Peninsula were actually Neophysites or Monophysites, depending on what term you want to use. They were not, they belonged to the Oriental Orthodox family of churches. Uh, in fact, uh, we know that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, the Ethiopians were actually. Uh, one of the protectors of the Christians in uh, 6th and 7th century Arabia. So we could infer from that that the Christians of that region were Jacobite or Miaphysite in orientation. There were some Nestorians. They were mostly in like uh, the northern edge of the peninsula, close to the border with Persia, because there were a lot of Persians. Sorry, there were a lot of Nestorians among the Persians. Uh, but, you know, they didn't really factor into the picture much until after Islam took over much of the former Sasanian Empire. Then, you know, uh, suddenly almost, almost all of the lands that were predominantly Nestorian came under Muslim rule. And a lot of the Christian authors that wrote about Islam during the Middle Ages were actually Nestorians. For example, um, the famous dialogue between um, the Nestorian patriarch Timothy and the Abbasid Caliph al-Mahdi. Uh, that's a presentation of like a Nestorian cleric uh, defending the Christian faith in the court of the ruler of Islam. Okay, I think that's all that we uh, have for you tonight. So plug anything you're doing right now. Well, you know... Um, I do have two major uh, blogs. I have Pros Aletheian, which is my general theology blog. Uh, I write. I, I I write whenever I have something that I really want to do some sort of treatise on. Um, and then the other one is Missile Reflections, which is just um, you know it's a little less theology heavy. I basically write commentaries on the. Uh, Sunday readings uh, at Mass. Uh, right now I'm focusing on the Old Testament, but at some point I want to pivot to commenting on St. Paul's epistles. Uh, other than that, I'm also, you know, I show up on Michael Lofton's show quite a bit. So, you know, stay tuned and reason in theology. I, I am going to uh, show up there a few more times very soon, God willing. Uh, by the way, I think you have one more question in the comments. Yes, I just saw that. So Andrew asked, how much do we know about the development of the Quran? I've heard it said that the canon of the Quran has gone through developments, and there are certain lost sections that we only know of because later Christian apologists have recorded it. Um, the canon of the Quran, that's an interesting one because... Um, so there's... You know, the uh, development and transmission of the Quran is uh, an ongoing 
uh, academic discussion, and uh, I'm actually talking to a scholar uh, who is doing who did his PhD on that topic, hoping to have him on reason and theology. No, uh, not going to reveal any other details besides that. But um, uh, there is there is a there is some development that took place in its very earliest stage, and um, the text did undergo some standardization. Uh, if you look at, for example, the Sana'a palimpsests that were found in Yemen, uh, they contain a form of the Quranic text that is uh, somewhat different from the canonical form as we have it today. Like, there would be words and phrases that are different. Um, as for the canon of it, the closest thing that I can think of is the fact that there were a few prominent Muslims in the early period who had a different number of surahs from the later standard 114. So uh, Ibn Mas'ud, for example, one of the companions of Muhammad had a 111 um, uh, surah canon. He did not have Surah Al-Fatiha, the very first chapter of the Quran. He also didn't have the last two uh, chapters of the Quran uh, in his um, book. And then by contrast, you have Ubay ibn Qab, who's uh, is said to have had 116 surahs in his Quran. So he has the canonical 114, and then he has two extra ones on top of that. And then the, in the Shi'i tradition, you sometimes hear about uh, how some books, uh, some there, there were two also surahs that were um, uh, lost because... Ali's um, Mus'haf or Codex had them, and then when he died, his readings died with him, and that there are also certain phrases and passages that were removed from the Quran. But this is like uh, something that pops up in a few uh, Shi'i works, especially in the very early stages of the Shi'i-Sunni split. Most Shi'is today have abandoned this idea. Um, so they would basically accept the same standard narrative about the formation of the Quran as Sunnis would. But there was historically that um, that that uh, narrative within some sectors of Shiism to say that the Quran had uh, originally more material than it presently has. Okay, that's all that we have for you guys tonight. Uh, don't forget, uh, follow me everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, I have, I have anything. Uh, become a patron, and we also have a Discord that is uh, it's really helpful to um, building relationships, being able to uh, be to be able to ask me more questions than you would be able to on other social media platforms, and to have good discussions with other uh, followers. So, anything you want to say before before we end this? Yeah, well. Um... Uh, I just want to reiterate something that I said um, early on, which is that um, you can do an offense, go on the offense and do critiques of Islam, but I think um, especially in the current period, it's much more fruitful to do like a positive case for Christianity. So I would recommend um, reading authors such as N.T. Wright or Richard Balcom, who talk about the historical reliability of the Bible and try to make a good case for that. Because it's effective for dealing with Muslims. It's also effective for dealing with atheists. And you'll get a much, you know, you get much more variety of uses out of that. 
Okay, thank you for being on the show tonight. My pleasure. And I will see you all tomorrow. We have a stream with Father James Gad, where we will be talking about Anglican history. So we're getting all the Christian mm -hmm. heretical sects, and I'm just joking <laughs> about that. I will see you all later.